Good morning and welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and on the NSN app. And as we all know, the big prize of the political year, of the off year, is the New York City mayoralty, said to be the second or third most important or toughest job in American politics. Uh, I don't know if you say it's the third. I don't know which one is the second. But we'll leave that aside for a second. This is the big thing of the political year. And, of course, New York being that type of town, it is a Democratic primary that, by and large, will decide who will be the next mayor of New York City to succeed Bill de Blasio. And that all went down on Tuesday, June the 22nd, June primary. And we have a political expert and a senior advisor to the presumptive we'll say at this point perhaps winner Menasha Shapiro old friend of the show old friend uh, back with us here at spin class talk about the race and just talk about all the interesting things that went into a New York City mayoral campaign Menasha welcome back all right good to be here Michael and emphasis on presumptive you know you don't want to to say anything until all the votes are are counted but uh, we had a very good night last night Okay, of course, I refer to Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. As Eric Adams said, the New York ranked Eric Adams number one. So I think that's safe to some safe thing to say. No question. The first choice of so many. And I think that actually the one the money line that I got from that speech last night, Manasha, I don't know if you wrote it. I don't know who wrote it. But as far as I'm concerned, it was money. When he said, don't treat Twitter like academic research, that there are some reporters out there who pretend that what's on Twitter is actual votes will actually translate into actual support. Perhaps that was a veiled swipe at or a not so veiled swipe at Andrew Yang or maybe some others. But, uh, you know, what, Menasha, why don't you give us an idea about the Adams campaign and how you guys pulled it off? Well, we had a very disciplined campaign, a very dedicated uh, staff uh, teamed at executing it. And one of the things that were most unique about this came campaign is that we did not have a really a centralized campaign office for everyone to, to work out of. Um, we started this campaign literally on Zoom um, as things began to open up and it became important to have field presence we in different neighborhoods, we opened up various field offices that were, you know, endorsed uh, Democratic clubs, endorsed the offices of, of endorsed uh, local elected officials. But at the end of the day, the campaign was largely, you know, a tool of the of what we started with during the pandemic, and we were seriously very. Uh, it was a very Zoom focused campaign, and we uh, were able to connect and pull off uh, on a on a massive scale what I never would have believed we could have done and something that had that had not been done on any campaign that I had worked on previously. Um, so that was really the first thing, the technical of how we did it. The second aspect of it was that we had a very set strategy and we stuck to it the entire time, um, which was really focused on outer borough uh, um building an outer borough ethnic coalition um, that really focused on Brooklyn and Queens um, and and the Bronx that, you know, really took shape once uh, uh, the Bronx Borough President Ruben Diaz uh, Jr. got on board. Um, and he really, you see something, if you look at the map of the, of the election, 
Um, the, f- the way the Bronx turned out for one single candidate and Moss is not something it, that's probably one of the more unique changes to the electoral map uh, from local from local elections uh, in the past. Um, I mean, Ruben Diaz and the entire team in the Bronx really, uh, really pulled off uh, something that I haven't seen in a while. Well, there was no Bronx candidate, so obviously that helped. Right. There was, and Reverend uh, Ruben Diaz Jr. was originally the Bronx originally, candidate. Right. Was originally a Bronx candidate. He chose not to run in this race for reasons that I, I still don't understand because he was uh, definitely going to be a leading candidate if he had gotten into the race. And um, the what we ended up having, which was something very interesting, was the, almost a coalescing of the borough presidents. Right, you had Eric Adams, who was a leading candidate, the new Queensboro president Donovan Richards, and and then you had Ruben Diaz Jr., who all got on board um, and really put a lot of effort and energy into into the campaign and really creating the uh, the focused attention on the outer boroughs, which is a lot of the mayoral candidates pay lip service to it, but Eric Adams actually did it, and I think that that was very crucial to the way uh the way literally we ran up the score last night so there's so much that goes into a citywide race in new york city and as i said we're both veterans of other campaigns uh you don't realize the enormity of new york city from you know tottenville in the south to far rockaway in the east and you know douglaston all the way up to to Riverdale, City Island, Co-op City, and everything in between. It's just a, it's just an incredibly uh, immense ge- geographically, population-wise. Um, I mean, there's just so much ground to cover. It is. I mean, if you do, if you look at the map, and I encourage all the listeners to look at, you know, how things check out. Uh, you know, South Southern Queens, not just Southeast Queens, but the whole Southern Queens, Southern Brooklyn. Uh, the basically the whole of the Bronx, the North Shore of Staten Island. I mean, uh, Eric Adams did extremely well. Uh, parts of uh, parts of Manhattan as well. Although Catherine Garcia uh, certainly uh, took most of Manhattan uh, quite impressively. But you know, I, I guess I want to know from you is when we started this race um, back at a time that there was a there was a feeling that progressives were ascendant in New York City politics, in New York in general, and certainly progressives had a great election day uh, in primaries last year, the June primaries of 2020, where they took out a number of incumbents uh, in the state assembly. uh, And, you know, there was this feeling that whoever, let's say, AOC was going to endorse, they were going to win the race, or whoever the progressives were going to endorse. And Eric Adams didn't play that game. How did you avoid that? How did you avoid that that trap? How did you just kind of stay focused on, I guess, the lane? I, you know, lanes are always a little bit fraught of a term. But how did you stay focused on a strategy and to, you know, kind of shut out that that noise? Well, I think it actually brings us back to what was probably the the underlying sentiment behind uh, what you open the show, open this discussion with, right? That the idea of progressive ascendancy was largely an invention of the of the Twitterverse, the Twitter sphere, and the uh, media members that derive all their information from it, and they were the ones who were largely driving that conversation. 
And when you get into a campaign and you get into a room and you have people who actually know the truth and you actually know what the reality is and you know how to break break down, we were not largely a campaign that existed on Twitter. Right? I was probably the one and I did it solely for the purpose of making sure that it was a tool for our campaign's rapid response, not because we were trying to, you know, promote ourselves, uh, you know, via via Twitter likes. But when the when false narratives are driven by um, by social media, it's very important to make sure you know the truth. So that was thing number one. We we all know what the reality is, especially among outer borough ethnic communities that are largely driven by religious institutions, whether it's a black church or a Hispanic church or, or shuls. And we also knew that there was a, any polling that you saw that the defund the police movement that came after these primaries that you referenced in 2020 uh, largely scared a lot of people. And it did not, it was not the mainstream. So you take that and you have a candidate who used to be a police officer and you take a candidate that has always marched to the beat of his own drummer. So he is not going to get pulled in the direction of what people in social media are telling him that are telling him how he should be pulled. And this came out in the campaign. They kept on saying, oh, you know, you were a police officer. You must not be for police reform. And anyone who was around in the 1990s, or early 2000s knows that's probably one of the funniest things a person could say you know one of the things that i noticed you know and mentioned recently you know in a discussion we were having was if you were to go back 25 years and say that the new york post was going to endorse eric adams for mayor that would have been the a most laughable idea the new york post was devoted to tearing down eric adams if you go back to the 90s and early 2000s when he was a police officer and a very outspoken police officer or outspoken police officer it was literally the sunday post was devoted to you know you could have put up a headline what eric adams said this week and they would literally you know if you go back and you look at all these articles they proceeded to tear him down the fact that he is someone who always marched to the beat of his own drummer and always knew that he was both a police a police officer and a police reformer really enabled him to rise above what you would say is the was the progressive nomenclature du jour and he turned that into building a coalition of that was probably the most diverse coalition i've i've ever seen and mike bloomberg by his third term built together a diverse coalition right but that had been but that was because he had been already mayor for for eight years going into that and that power of incumbency had a lot to do with being able to build a diverse coalition. Eric Adams literally had, he didn't just have the diversity of the Jewish community, but he had the diversity of the African-American community. He had diversity among the Latino community, whether you're Puerto Rican, Dominican, Mexican, Venezuelan, or uh, or Colombian. The, the, these are strong ethnic uh, blocks that all came together for... Uh, for Eric Adams and then the South Asian community, you know, we have uh, Jennifer Raj Kumar, the first uh, Asian American, uh, South Asian elected official you know, coming on board the campaign. This truly was a, you know, whatever you want to call it, a, a mosaic, a, um, 
a well, that brings us back the, <laughs> yeah. the, the gorgeous mosaic. But, well, but I mean, but I'm just saying it's like you looked you looked at the you looked at the room last night. You looked at that stage. It looked like that. You had you had you had, you had Pais and Yamakas and and Chabad and you had you know Mexican, Dominican, Colombian, uh, Jamaican, uh, you know Caribbean, uh, African American. You had the entire amalgam of new york city up on that stage i was marveling at it when i was standing there and just watching it so that's a great segue since you mentioned payas chabad etc the battle for the orthodox jewish community between yang and adams i think was well it, it was certainly epic uh in the back and forth between different sects and uh, the misinformation going back and the Rebbe pictures and everything uh, this group, they did endorse, they didn't endorse, this paper did endorse, not endorse. You know, I mean, my uh, – I got more WhatsApp messages from different people shilling for different campaigns. In fact, like I had one guy, you know, a certain Hasidic political operative. I think he switched campaigns three times. You know, by the third time when you're supporting a different person, it's just – yeah, it kind of cheapens the message. But talk for a second about how that played out, the battle for the Orthodox Jewish community. Uh, Yang certainly seemed to have the momentum, kind of as he you know, seemed to have peaked early, uh, certainly didn't peak on Election Day and finished a distant fourth at this point and has already conceded. So uh, talk for a second about what went on with regard to the Jewish vote, the Jewish community. The Orthodox vote, of course, is not the entirety of the Jewish vote. But what happened uh, with regard to Brooklyn? And if you look at the map, back to it, you have this interesting dividing line, kind of McDonald Avenue. Uh, yeah, on the left of McDonald Avenue is Borough Park. Uh, that's Yang Territory, with a lot of Adams. And on the right, just to the east of that, is Midwood. And you entirely dominated by Eric Adams. Well, I think, actually, it was, it was, it was this combination of interesting... And then it descended into silly season, and then and you know this sometimes the battle with for for the different blocks and who's allowed to endorse and who can't endorse and, and are who are you representing and who are you not representing? It's a it's a it's an election within an election sometimes, and it becomes uh, very difficult to play out. What 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 really happened here was the and this gets exposed and you see this on election day andrew yang had a hundred percent name recognition uh coming into this race andrew yang back in january and today because of his performance in the presidential campaign is probably one of the most recognizable people in the world and is certainly one of the most recognizable people in new york city but he did not have a natural political base in the classic sense of the word and when you are running for mayor, you need to draw upon a political base, something upon which you can call upon as reliable votes. And there's different varying degrees of, you know, whether or not the Jewish, the Orthodox Jewish community is a monolithic block or not. They appeared that way this past November, especially in the Borough Park and Williamsburg commu- uh, communities. So it wasn't completely out of left field that someone would try to go in there 
I'm not saying Andrew Yang was Trumpian, even though I probably have a few on-the-record statements saying that he was. Um, but to try to capitalize and go into the community and try to be the candidate for that community, which was specifically what Andrew Yang did in Borough Park um, and then a little later in Williamsburg. And what was the difference here is that usually the operatives, as you said, they're very seasoned. They know how this works. So they hold their their cards close to the vest. There's some new leadership. There are new elected officials there who uh, wanted to... uh, get get involved a, a little earlier than than usual and they uh they got involved so it looked like at the time it looked like back in march and april that andrew yang was on his way to sewing up the uh the the the, the orthodox vote in brooklyn what they did not count on however is that they were going up against the Brooklyn Borough President, who has long-standing relationships, who has not just a Rolodex but a phone of so many people, all of whom he has worked together with, he came out politically, grew out of Crown Heights, and we know Chabad is an incredibly strong presence, especially in Brooklyn, especially in elections, especially with the with the media, and it sort of began to flow uh, from there. So. Andrew Yang makes two announcements in Borough Park, and then the next thing, what started happening was, wait a minute, you know, we have long-standing relationship with Eric Adams, Crown Heights, the Sephardic community, Sephardic community. Um, then Far Rockaway. Eric, and then I was about to say that. Then Eric came to Far Rockaway because Far Rockaway is part of the outer borough strategy we were building the campaign around. It was a natural flow, and we have already seen the strength of what Farakaway voting looks like is we just had a special election and a mathematical special that actually told us what the block looks like and the community to its credit is sticking together and voting as a block and went right into Farakaway and as soon as we went into Farakaway you just it was almost that was the tipping point when he got the endorsement of Farakaway uh Farakaway Jewish Alliance all the other Staten Island came into play. The Ironim in Williamsburg, who are a lot, were playing it a lot closer to the vest, jumped in. Um, and the and Flatbush and Midwood, right, the dividing line you just discussed, they came. They came almost like on the heels a couple of days afterwards, and that was really the big thing. And now suddenly you have Flatbush, Farakaway, uh, Crown Heights, and it totally. Uh, it totally changed the dynamic of the race because it just reinforced that there was no ethnic community that Eric Adams did not appeal to in this race. Because the, the message was always the same. I mean, we haven't even talked about the central message of the campaign. Public safety is the prerequisite to prosperity. Every time no somebody question. asked Eric Adams about his COVID recovery plan, the answer is public safety. Because you can't come back if you're not safe when you walk outside. And this Correct. was, this was the, you know, it's the verbal tick in my head, but it's also true. So. I think that that's, I think that that was no question. That narrative clearly changed. And those who are on record, uh, certainly by Wiley in a debate, not being able to answer whether the police should have their guns taken away. Um, absolutely bizarre moment uh, that, that made her, I think, toxic for any middle-of-the-road type voter. But, Manasha, yeah, I got two number, questions. There are, number of, there are a number of debates really. Last, the, the last question is going to be about Curtis Slewell. But before we get to <laughs> Curtis, uh, 
one thing that surprised you in the Democratic primary? One thing. That could, one thing. Give me the biggest thing that surprised you in this race. Well, one of the things that everybody always uh, talks about in the Democratic primary in New York City is the power of the endorsement of the New York Times. And um, it worked for Brad Lander in in recent in recent uh, in recent uh, uh, years. You uh, it it had appeared that the New York Times endorsements power and utility in local elections had shrunk. But we began to see in the 2019 public advocate special election when they went for Jamani Williams in a citywide race. And you see now, if you really want to look at all the races in the city, especially the citywide races, even even the mayor's race, the New York Times endorsement returned to its perch as mattering. And I was telling this to a number of reporters uh, last night, not just from the New York Times, but if you just looked at the the way things played out in this race, in the mayor's race, you know, the New York Times endorsement, suddenly Catherine Garcia shot, she literally, it, it basically shot her over Yang. And, you know, if you want to talk about all the different factors that caused Yang to sink, this was a major one. And this yeah, was I, would a- I, I would you know, actually say... That had urged Andrew Yang after the presidential to get involved in New York politics. The fact that they then turned around and and got behind Catherine Garcia, I, I it just this is something that you want to know what surprised me. I didn't think it would matter as much as it did, but once it happened, I began to see how it was mattering, and you see you see it in the results. You look at who reads the New York Times, and you look at the map of Manhattan. It is about three quarters. Colored for Catherine Garcia, you know, that that's that's that ball game right there. Right. Well, I would actually throw out to you that had Maya Wiley gotten the New York Times endorsement, you'd probably see a very uh, potentially very different result um, on that. If Maya you know, Wiley the, had gotten the New York every, Times endorsement, the redor- and the result would be so different, and I might not be sitting here talking to you right now. So. Right. So, but I'm saying, but but she clearly, according to a lot of people, she really uh, butchered that that interview. So let's move on to Curtis Lewa as we run out of time here, uh, Menasha. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got a, a you have a election uh, general election opponent, Republican Curtis Lewa, new to the Republican Party, relatively. Uh, he is uh, he famously has said that he did vote for Trump. Uh, which is kind of interesting that he romped in the uh, Demo- in the Republican Party over Fernando Mateo, seventy uh, something percent of the vote. Uh, what do you think? I mean, can is this from the Giuliani Bloomberg uh, Fiorella Laguardia John Lindsay uh, tradition of uh, New York City Republicans? No, absolutely not. I mean, we have already seen that that tradition of Republican Party is gone. Uh, whatever and whatever Rudy was in the '90s no longer exists, right? The Rudy announced his Rudy announced his uh, famously announced his campaign in 1990 in 1989 from the Metropolitan Republican Club, the famous club of uh, Fiorello Laguardia, and that club has now been taken over by you know people who believe that Donald Trump uh, is not only won the election but currently sits in the Oval Office. Um, and I, you know, I'm not sugarcoating that because this is how you look at the Twitter feeds of some of these people. That's how they act. Um, this is, this, 
you know, the fact that Curtis Lewa, you know, didn't vote for Donald Trump. Curtis Lewa has been all over the political map. He's only recently registered as the, in the Republican Party. He used to run on the Reform Party line, right? So the, when there was a Reform Party, he's uh, he's more of a character candidate than an ideological candidate. Um, he always has been. He has name recognition and presence in the city. It's gonna, it's gonna be interesting. But at the end of the day, I mean, he's not going to attract. Uh, I mean, the, the de- we know that the Democratic primary is going to decide this, and there's nobody, not Curtis Lewa or anyone else, who's tried to seize the Republican Party that uh, could uh, really change that. And I say that with a strong degree of self-interest and self-confidence at the moment. So. Okay, so we definitely did not get into all the mathematical permutations, absentee votes, ranked choice voting. This race is not over. There are a number of races that are also not over. Probably go into that in the remaining time. But, Menashe, I want to thank you for giving us the insider's insight into the race. And uh, we welcome you back uh, over the course of the rest of the campaign as well as in the future. Thank you. So as we close out this episode, uh, it was primary day throughout New York State. And two races of note I just want to identify and uh, discuss briefly. Number one, the mayor of Buffalo, Democratic primary for the mayor of Buffalo, Byron Brown, longtime incumbent, uh, seems to have been defeated in a Democratic primary uh, by a total political newcomer, India Walton, running as a socialist. Uh, and, you know, this is uh, the definitely from the Democratic Socialists of America. We only thought about that in New York City. But no, they are upstate in Buffalo, New York as well. Byron Brown, a staunch ally of Governor Cuomo, longtime incumbent, uh, apparently, by all accounts, uh, didn't see this coming, barely campaigned, just acted as if he didn't even have a reelection. Uh, certainly something that we've seen before from certain incumbents. Uh, who have taken that for granted, certainly those high in power. Joe Crowley comes to mind against the AOC uh, several years ago. In Democratic primaries, in these small turnout primaries, anything can happen. And I think one more of note, which is more uh, something that was totally, I think, uh, unrecognized by the Jewish community, the city council president of Yonkers, New York, just north north of New York City, actually the third or maybe the fourth largest, but probably soon to be third largest city in the state. Yonkers is a very significantly uh, city, about 300,000 people, 250, 300,000 people. The city council president elected citywide a gentleman named Mike Cater, although uh, gentleman might be generous. Uh, Cater uh, spoke at one of these anti-Israel pro-Hamas rallies, uh, uh, rallies, several weeks ago, and accused Israel of committing genocide. Now, that's rhetoric that we see. We see that from Students for Justice in Palestine and other radical organizations that are pro-BDS, etc. This is a sitting city council president of a very large city here in New York State, just north of New York City. Uh, The city might not have a large Jewish community anymore. At one time it did. Uh, but certainly something that we should be paying attention to as we pay attention to anti-Semitic comments throughout New York City and certain legislators. So Cater was uh, out there accusing Israel of committing genocide in Gaza. Of course, you know nothing for Hamas, etc. Um, 
at a rally. And this is a prominent elected official, and when they say things like that, and so he also was defeated by an African American uh, school board member, uh, Lakeisha Collins Bellamy, and she has uh, she's taken it down quite handily, actually. Uh, it turns out he had some other issues. Uh, he had some, some investigation for harassment in his office and potentially misusing resources, and the Democratic Party itself kind of turned on him. But you know what I find interesting about this is that here is a guy spouting outright anti-Semitic, anti-Zionist, I mean both, uh, di- uh, screeds publicly against uh, Israel, uh, against the Jewish people, uh, because I think when you accuse Israel of genocide, that's, that's akin to the modern-day blood libel. And you know nobody notices, nobody seems to say anything, nobody seems to care. You know, the Jewish groups, they're focused on federal uh and you know this escapes unnoticed well it should not escape unnoticed thankfully he was defeated uh the yonkers establishment rallied against him mayor mike spano uh, a great guy i've known for years absolutely fantastic uh, uh politician and he rallied uh, a lot of yonkers against uh mike cater this guy should go away hopefully from politics we don't need that kind of vitriol that kind of divisiveness that kind of anti-semitism against the jewish people and uh to accuse israel of genocide i think of course is beyond the pale it shows no context it shows no nuance and it's in there with the people who want to wipe israel off the map uh, that's it for this week. Here on Spin Glass, as you know, anything in politics is possible. That's why we follow it every single week here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Joseph. See you next week.